This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Are we going to be able to see what's in this search warrant or not? The legal battle continues over this. And this, of course, is the search warrant that was used to justify the search of former U.S. President Donald Trump's Florida home last week. So what is going on with this? Joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So where is this legal battle right now? Uh, well, it is still uh, underway. Uh, we found out yesterday that the uh, Florida judge, the one who originally signed off on the search warrant, went to the Department of Justice and said that he didn't believe that the entire affidavit, which lays out kind of the narrative for the search, needs to be kept under full seal uh, and ordered that DOJ come back with some redactions, explain those redactions, and ultimately uh, potentially prepare themselves for something that could be released to the public DOJ pushing back, obviously saying that this could get in the way of their investigation. But the judge himself, who obviously knows what's inside that affidavit and understands uh, kind of what the legalities are around it, says something can go out there. Uh, we now kind of have to wait to see where they're going to meet and, and, and what that center is going to be. OK, so but why then did the Attorney General Merrick Garland say that he supported having this um, out there if the Department of Justice is objecting? Well, I mean, look, the, the, the attorney general understands that there is uh, a great public interest in what took place at Mar-a-Lago because this has been so highly publicized, not only by the media, but by the former president himself, who is actually fundraising off of this effort. And the attorney general understands the pressure that is building underneath him. At the same time, the Department of Justice says, look, we are in the middle and the very beginnings of an active investigation, likely a criminal investigation. And by exposing too much of this affidavit, we run the risk of not only getting in front of ourselves and possibly derailing the work that we're doing, but at the same time, we may put people whose uh, accounts are so specific uh, when it comes to evidence, we may wind up shining a light on these people and putting them in harm's way. And, and that's obviously of concern, given the increase in threats that we've seen against FBI and DOJ agents over the last couple of weeks. Right, because I know this has become quite the political football. Who then is going to court to open up this thing? Who wants to have this search warrant out there? The media. The media is who wants to have this search warrant out there, number one. They say that this is in the public's interest. And one of the lawyers uh, for uh, for Dow Jones, who who uh, is a you know has some media ownership, uh, yesterday outside of the court said that there is um, a reality here that, that the media needs to be able to keep track on what the government is doing. And, and therefore, the media was, was the main uh, kind of person or group in the court going after uh, the release of this. It is worth pointing out, Donald Trump does want this released as well. Right. Some in his orbit are saying, eh, maybe not so fast. Maybe we don't want this out there. But his one of his lawyers was in court yesterday as an observer and didn't speak. And I think that also kind of speaks miles to where the Trump team is right now. OK, that's what I was wondering, too, because we have heard the former president say that, yeah, put this all out there. But then I think, does do they know? Does the Trump team already know what's in this warrant? 
Well, I mean, at the end of the day, Donald Trump himself very likely knows what was taken out of Mar-a-Lago uh, in those dozens of boxes, uh, especially with the search warrant release that says so much of it is um, is top secret. I think the uh, second piece of this puzzle was released yesterday because the Florida judge did allow for some documents to be unsealed yesterday, and that included the cover sheet for the warrant uh, that talks about how the FBI was specifically investigating, quote, willful retention of national defense information that shows that there was something being held onto by the former president at his private estate that a judge found probable cause for the FBI to go into. So this this is a very large piece of the puzzle that potentially puts the former president in a little bit more hot water, which may be why his lawyers were not in court to say, you know what, let us, let's just get this all out there. OK, so then what do we know now, Reggie, about about the documents, about the attitudes? We heard that it was, you know, classified documents that shouldn't have been taken out of the White House. But have we learned anything more about what the government wanted back? Well, I mean, I mean, there's two different things there. Number one, we heard that they were classified. And then we heard from the president that they weren't classified or that they were there because it was work from home or because he wanted to have the mementos. We heard a whole myriad of different responses as to why these documents were there. Uh, the FBI uh, and, and realistically, this goes all the way up to National Archives and the Archivist and the Presidential Records Act, that these are not allowed to simply be taken out of Washington. Many of them have to be in a secured room. There, there are very few people in government who will see many of these documents and they were with in arm's reach of people who were at a golf club. That is problematic for national security. So that is part of the reason why this, is, why this is so important. I think that there's a second part of this, though, that we are learning now in that um, the prosecutor yesterday made a very clear indication that the information that was taken by FBI agents, sure, it is, re- uh, it is linked to, uh, you know, national defense and, and whatever these top secret documents are. But secondly, they had a broad search warrant here, Simi, so they could take information that was found in these boxes in whatever they grabbed maybe it has connections to january 6th maybe it has connection to something else if it supports a crime that's being investigated those documents can also be handed off so all of a sudden this seizure could potentially find itself running down multiple different avenues here and that's why i think there was such an urgency to get these documents back this is Mornings with Simi. You may have seen the headlines in the last 24 hours that if you have an Apple product that you need to make sure you update it because of some serious security flaws. It's very alarmist, right? Uh, certainly it got me concerned thinking I better start updating my things. So what is going on? Joining us now is Bianca Wiley, a technology expert and partner at Digital Public. Bianca, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. This seems like a very high profile thing. Like, should Apple users be worried? So... Two, two things. One, we should always be concerned when we are using products like this, you know, in ways all across our lives, all kinds of sensitive information. So at a high level, we need to pay attention and update our devices. OK, so that's the major general right. high level message. The second thing is here, given, um, you know, the if you think of who may be at higher risk for something like this, it's really activists, journalists, like people who might be the targets of you know, sort of spying issues to be, you know, very explicit about it, which is not the everyday user, right? So it's both firstly, take it seriously, update your device, and we need to know these things happen. Also, secondly, you know, who is a more likely um, person who should be worried about this? It's someone who may really have a, a real threat of being surveilled for, you know, various reasons. And I think journalists and activists fall into that space. Okay, so I think uh, overall, like you tell me, are people not great at updating or doing those software updates when they should be? 
I always like to push this back to the companies in charge, right? And so what bothers me about this is I didn't find out from Apple. I found out from the news. And I found out from people who pay attention to security. So last night I updated my device, right, as soon as I was told. Exactly. But I didn't get that message from Apple. So I think the problem here is Apple's the one who's supposed to be very proactive um, and making sure these disclosures are out there rather than this. I, I don't like it when it shifts to the user, to the person, you know, to the person holding, I like to say user, the person holding the phone. Like this, our responsibility should be that, you know, we expect these things work. And I think the responsibility for this learning around, you know, updating and when there's issues, we got to push it back to those who, you know, are holding on to the right. problem, which in this case is Apple. You know, you're so right about that because I went to go, uh, same thing. I read about it in the news. I thought, oh, you know, and I should update my stuff. And when I went to go do it, I had to go and hunt down the software update. It wasn't showing up. It wasn't like, you know, reminding me that I needed to update, which it sometimes does. And is that they just don't want to advertise the fact that there was this flaw to begin with? I don't know enough. Like, I'm still reading, so I'm not sure at what point you have that kind of a trigger where you would push a notification. Or Like, we also want to be careful as to, like, where the responsibility lives for that for that very specific piece of it, right? As right. to, like, what is the threshold? Because you've probably, you know, lived this, I do, where when every device is beeping and blinking, you know, 16 times a day, you right. also block it out. Right. So I think like it's it's I I don't want to make it sound so easy, like as to how they should be communicating out. But even if it's not in the device, I just think generally out to the world, you know, you put the statement, you do the thing and figure out like what is the protocol for when this happens? It feels like there's room for improvement. I'm not saying it's you know, it will ever be perfect, but. Right. That's a thing. But we have to go and look for it in this particular case. And I did find it interesting, Bianca, that this this particular security flaw or whatever it is, is making headlines everywhere, isn't it? Well, it's because the depth of what it is from what I'm reading is that this would really allow someone if someone if you were targeted and I want to keep saying like I think this is this is not everybody. Right. But if someone would be able to basically get the full you know access to your device and take everything that's on it or surveil your motion. And um, that's <laughs> that is significant. And I think that's why it's making, you know, making news as it should. Um, that's a deep uh, exploit. Like that's, you know, like there's there's all kinds of different problems that can happen with technology, but that's a very fundamental issue when someone could basically have full control, you know, of the device and access to what's on it. Right. So, yeah. So, okay, keep your devices updated. Bianca, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Bianca Wiley, a technology expert partner at Digital Public. You've probably seen this headline, too, that it's saying that there are some serious security vulnerabilities for iPhones, iPads, and Macs that could potentially allow attackers to take complete control of those devices. And listen, this is something that Apple itself has disclosed now. They just disclosed it a day or so ago. And it didn't, you know, tech publications kind of paid attention to it. But then I feel like late yesterday, all of a sudden, a lot of other publications suddenly went, hold on, this this sounds pretty serious. It means that a hacker could potentially get full administrative access to a, a device. That is some scary stuff. So I went and hunted it down on my iPhone and my iPad to say, okay, get find that software, update, and update it. It is, as Bianca pointed out, you have to look for this one. But do it. Make sure you update all of those devices. They said it is the um, several models of the iPad, including the fifth generation and later. It is all iPad Pro models, the iPad Air 2, uh, any Mac computer that runs uh, Mac OS Monterey. Make sure that you update that. And, of course, your phone, your iPhone should definitely be updated, too. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, inflation is on the minds of everybody these days. We've heard the Bank of Canada talking about it quite a bit. Governor Tiff Macklin making suggestions to business leaders about how to deal with it. And one of the things that he said is causing a lot of concern for labour leaders. He suggested last month that business leaders should refrain from building high inflation into wage negotiations even though, as we all know, your salaried employee out there, that money is buying you less and less as inflation goes up and up. To talk more about this now, B. Brusk joins us, President of the Canadian Labour Congress. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So what did you think when you heard those words from Tiff Macklem? Well, quite honestly, I was quite frustrated. I think workers all know that their paychecks are being stretched more and more and that their wages, certainly any wage increases that they have maybe received over the last number of years, have not nearly kept up to the rising costs that they're seeing at the grocery store, at the gas pumps and in their rent or housing costs. And so, you know, blaming workers is really a problem. Blaming wages for workers is really a problem. We really hear endlessly about the concern about wages driving increases in prices, the wage price spiral. But in the face of astonishing corporate profits, we're not hearing the dire warnings about huge corporate profit uh, price increases, increasing prices. And so that's really a problem for us. And we, we really think that that's not uh, a fair assessment. We also know that businesses know that there's, you know, it's hard to hire people these days, too. It's a very challenging situation. There's a labor shortage out there. Are businesses, be in your experience, are they responding to that? Is that environment changing? Well, I think businesses are trying to uh, to address the worker shortage by offering various different, um, you know, opportunities for employees. But we still have far too many businesses who are looking to hire just part-time workers who are not offering things that workers need, like benefits, like a potential pension plan, like an opportunity to work your way up within that particular place of employment. And so, you know, businesses need to do a better job of actually compensating workers for the labor that they provide. And how do you propose that they do that? Well, quite frankly, I think that, you know, you have to look at what what you're charging employees, what you're charging um, customers that are coming in. We know some of the very large corporations who are the very ones who are talking about having a hard time uh, attracting workers are also some of the ones who are not necessarily uh, employing workers in a full-time kind of way, right? We see that in a grocery store type of setting, right? Those are the very same corporations that are actually driving inflation by increasing their prices significantly. We know in grocery in the grocery world, for example, that uh, the food costs for most families have gone up 9.9% in one year. And we know that those profits for those giant companies like Loblaw have been increasing substantively over the last two years, especially during the pandemic. When you have the president of Loblaw taking home over $5,000 per hour, uh, you know, that's problematic when you're at the same time increasing prices for workers who, quite frankly, are, are really stretched within their, their budgets. All right. So then what, you know, the Bank of Canada seems to have a different approach to this. Are you concerned that business leaders will kind of heed that warning? We're always concerned that business leaders will heed that kind of warning. When we see the CPI uh, at 7.6 percent at wages at, you know, many workers have not had a wage increase in many years. And if they have, it's maybe been a 1 percent wage increase. Workers are losing ground. And so we are going to be seeing more challenges when it comes to workers at bargaining tables, right, demanding better. And we're going to see more workers wanting to sign a union card to have more bargaining power to actually increase their wages. Does it feel to you like, you know, this whole industry, the whole idea of the job market right now is in a big state of flux? 
it is in a big state of flux, but I think employers have to look at why that is. What kind of jobs and opportunities are you offering for employees? And uh, what are you doing to actually encourage and attract those workers to want to come and, and to want to stay? And the same goes for our public sector workers, right? And we know that there's challenges and issues right now. When you're offering less than what uh, the rate of inflation is to workers, that's a problem. And workers can't keep shouldering the burden of, of these wage increases without some relief. So what are workers saying? Like, so if there are workers right now, we have quite a few of them in BC who are negotiating contracts. What are they saying about what they want out of these new contracts? They are saying that we've been left behind and it's time that we need to make up for that lost ground. Uh, We work very hard. We've gotten through a pandemic over the last two and a half years. We continue to show up every single day. We have an aging population. There's more and more of a burden on especially workers in the healthcare sector. Um, and, you know, that, that means that we need to actually meet that challenge by actually increasing wages so that workers are not continuing to fall behind. Okay, so what are the next steps here then? Like, obviously, this is we're waiting until September 7th, which is the next announcement from the Bank of Canada. But do you feel it's just going to be more of the same? I do think it may be more of the same. You know, Labour does have some solutions. We we are asking um, for our federal government to look at some solutions like uh, introducing, um, you know, an excess profit tax like some other countries have done in the UK, for example, and in Spain, and to redirect those profits uh, to services and to individuals who need them. So there are solutions and there are answers other than just saying keep wages down because that is not a solution that workers can live with. All of us feel that pinch when we go to the grocery store. All of us feel that pinch when we're paying our monthly bills. You know, with back to school right around the corner, a lot of families are struggling and they're going to continue to struggle. So we need some relief. So you feel Canada needs a what they call like a windfall profits tax? I think that's a start. Okay. And what has the reception been like from the government when you suggest that? Uh, so far, they're not they're not keen to, to look at that as an option. But, you know, there are other countries in the world that are looking at those options. And we think that it's time for Canada to take a serious look at that as an opportunity. OK, so when you look ahead to the next few months, then, B, is this going to be a tough time for workers, do you think, especially if they've got a contract that's up for renegotiation? I think that workers are going to be uh, demanding more of their employers and of their governments. And so I think workers are in a position to take on some of the struggles to actually make sure that they get more at the bargaining tables. And we're seeing that play out. And we also see, from the union perspective, many more workers who are wanting to sign a union card so that they have a better shot at getting a fair wage increase. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate that. That is B. Brusk, who's the president of the Canadian Labour Congress. Labour groups don't like what they heard from the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin last month. He suggested that business leaders should not build high inflation into wage negotiations. In fact, his exact words were, don't build that into longer term contracts. Don't build that into wage contracts. He said, it's going to take some time, but you can be confident that inflation will come down. Well, we haven't really seen that so far this year, have we? It has just been nothing but up, up and up. And we are talking for every single thing that we need to buy out there. And so does that set up, um, you know, a kind of showdown between employers and employees? Now, you tell me, like, has your employer been at all receptive to the idea of, yeah, I understand everything's costing you more. Um, You know, you want to raise, obviously. What has that reception 
been like on that issue where you work. Simi at cknw.com, or you can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. That is going to be a tough one for a lot of people out there. If you have a contract or something that is up, maybe you just negotiate your salary every year with your employer. Non-union, that's kind of the way it goes, right? That there's a time of year when you go in there and review salary and expectations and all of that. Have you floated the idea of a raise because of the inflation situation? And how has your boss taken that? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi. Six years ago, we were talking about the public health emergency in this province, and that is the deadly drug crisis. That's when we, it kind of first came into our public consciousness with the declaration that it was a public health emergency. Well, six years ago is also when Vancouver City Council decided to go ahead and approve a 0.5% property tax hike that was specifically to deal with this deadly drug crisis. Kind of became known as the fentanyl tax. Well, six years later, we were wondering, what has happened with that? Do we know where that money is being spent? Joining us now is Adrian Carr, Vancouver City Councillor. She was on council six years ago and did vote in favour of this. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, my pleasure, Simi. Thanks for asking me. I do remember that at the time you said, listen, this is the first budget item that you had voted in favour of. Why did you think it was important to do that? This is a crisis. It's a crisis in the city that's a kind of combination of a drug crisis, a health crisis, a housing crisis, a safety crisis. And, um, you know, it's in our faces. It's it's worrying to everybody that I know. Um, So, yeah, I think, uh, you, you know, when you see a crisis like this, you have to apply resources. That's why I voted for it. Okay, so six years later, has it actually made a difference, though? (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's a good question because so many things have gotten worse about it um, and it has made a difference. So I remember at the time you know, I had done a ride along with the fire department and, and uh, it, so it was an all night ride along. And, you know, I remember, Cindy, that we never got back to the fire hall. We'd go out on a call and before we could even get back to the fire hall, there was another call. We diverted to another call. It was unbelievable. So one of the things that was discussed at the council table at the time that we voted on this budget was the need for extra um, vehicles and teams in, in terms of our firefighters on the front line of answering these emergency calls. And uh, that did happen. It wasn't necessarily part of what we, um, the, 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 the amount, the 0.5% we voted for, but we did get that extra unit on um, at Fire Hall 2, the downtown Fire Hall. And so that has made a difference, at least um, in answering those calls, in saving lives, um, and in, in putting more of our, our um, frontline firefighters um, on, on the scene. So that was um, the discussion we had at the council table. Uh, we just got a report yesterday, thanks to media pushing for what has happened to that money, um, on where that money's gone. A 5.5% increase in the budget is about 
was about at that time $3.5 million. It's increased since then because of inflation. Um, but uh, in total, there's been over $16 million that has been spent um, by the city in terms of coping with this. And um, one of the things we've done certainly has had a much more concentrated um, staff outreach team uh, that has focused on the ground in collaboration with uh, the health ministry, you know, mental health and addictions ministry, housing ministries, and the federal government to try and tackle mm-hmm. the problem there. Okay, but um, so but in six in six years, then, Councillor Carr, was that the first kind of accounting of that spending? And do you think that's effective? Uh, well, first of all, um, we get an accounting for the spending every single year. Um, many in many cases, we don't read or we don't look necessarily for all always the same line item in each budget. There's always priorities that we're looking at in, in every budget. But um, yeah, there's always accounting for it. Um, a consolidated report on it. Um, although there's been consolidated reports on the crisis itself, the um, the deadly uh, drug crisis, as you called it at the, at the top of this uh, of this piece. Um, so that we get every year. Um, but um, but the accounting of where the money's gone, for example, into um, grants, microclean grants in the downtown east side, which is employing people and getting them um, sort of off uh, and into regular lives and off, um, you know, a, a disastrous um, health, uh, unhealthy lifestyle. Um, so that is a very positive uh, impact. Certainly, we've been um, also uh, looking at uh, at housing in a in a huge way. Um, not enough, never enough. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but that we've had this year more housing money into housing, more units being built. Um, that are supportive housing, that are um, that's, that's housing that can take people so they're not on the streets. Um, we also put money into the DPD in terms of drug containment facilities, um, so that's being listed in the in the budget right. um, summary we got yesterday. I guess I wonder then, do you believe that the city is getting value for that money, given that the problem has only gotten worse? The problem not getting, sorry, yes, I do believe there's value in the money. If we hadn't put that money there, we'd have more people on the streets. We'd have more deaths. Um, we would, uh, we'd have, we've had more, we would have more of a crisis with, you know, more people losing family members. And, and you, we're hearing the stories on the media all the time right now. It's tragic, tragic what's going on. So, yes, it's had an impact. Has it had enough of an impact? Um, no, it, it hasn't. It's gotten worse, not because we haven't been putting more money into it, which we have, um, which has had a positive effect, but because of several things. Number one, um, the drugs themselves have become more toxic. And, uh, you know, we're hearing reports certainly out of Los Angeles, San Francisco and other places that, you know, P2P meth, for example, has created such a more debilitating impact um, in terms of almost six schizophrenic type and violent type uh, reactions in the people that, that end up using those drugs. We haven't de-linked um, the criminal drug trade where the poison drugs are coming from and uh, the people who end up using them. A safe supply has not happened yet. The federal government's dragging its feet in my mind. Um, we have certainly the first 
of a, of a decision by the federal government uh, to provide some safe supply in terms of very small quantities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need we need to have a, a, a much more bold action on the part of the federal government um, so that we don't have the, the criminal elements out there um, selling poison drugs to people. Was this intended, though, to be a permanent tax? Uh, it, it has become that, yes. It's been in the budget every year. At the time, it was a 0.5% increase in the property tax at that time you know it, it, you know we're talking about four dollars per uh, per condo dwelling eleven dollars per single family home not a large amount of money um, but as I say it has yes it has been a uh, continuous 0.5 percent which is why percentage wise it, it ends up with more more money just because of inflation um, so the 3.5 million it was in 2018 is now uh, 4.7 million right but it wasn't what didn't when it was proposed back then I seem to remember it was not thought of as a permanent tax but it certainly seems to have become a permanent tax yeah yeah you know I have to agree with you I don't remember the discussion being a permanent tax but that is the way certainly that it was treated and you know that's a long it's a many years ago many council meetings ago and it, it definitely could have been part of the discussion but um, but definitely that has been what's happened and you know what good on staff for doing that because it has been able to supply money to um, the kinds of services that are needed to improve the situation down there. As you say, it still hasn't improved, uh, but not because we haven't been applying resources and it would be a heck of a lot worse if we weren't applying those resources. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. Yep. Appreciate it, Simi. Um, Thanks for your interest. Thank you for the discussion. That's Adrienne Carr, Vancouver City Councillor. Now, of course, she has been on council for a while. She was on council back in 2016. Uh, She's one of two people, two councillors who were there in 2016 and are still there now when this tax was under discussion at that time. She voted for it. Uh, and believes, as you heard her just say, that it's it was a good idea then, it's a good idea now. Uh, but Melissa DiGenova, the MPA councillor, was also on council at that time. She voted against it at that time. Uh, and again, it, I don't remember it being discussed as a permanent tax. I remember the words temporary. I remember we need to do this for now. It has certainly become permanent. And I know people wonder, well, what is the impact of that? So you heard what it's going for And now what more could they possibly do? Could we possibly do to make a difference down there? This is Mornings with Simi. What do the Canadian band Rare Americans and Pink Shirt Day have in common? Well, it may seem like not very much, but that is not true. Their common interest is something you probably understand very well. It's bullying. And as a result, the band is doing something pretty unique to help out kids. Joining us now to talk about that is James Priestner, who's the lead singer of Rare Americans. James, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, first off, how do you describe the band's music? Uh, we're honestly uh, a little uh, all over the place. I think we, we pull from multiple uh, multiple genres, but I guess if you had to classify us, uh, you would consider us an, an alternative band. Uh, and we're kind of a fusion of a bit of hip-hop, uh, some punk rock, and a little bit of folk as well. Because I was looking up some information. I wanted to know how you guys you know settled on your name. Like it's a Canadian band called Rare Americans. How did that happen? Oh man, we uh, we went back and forth on band names for for a really long time, and uh, you know we had we had a list back and forth, me and my brother, and then uh, the name Rare Americans popped up, and uh, we kind of had this idea that you know being Canadian, we're just so influenced by by America, especially in the entertainment industry, 
Um, you know, everything we do, it seems like everybody tries to essentially break and get big in a, in America. And I feel like as Canadians, we're kind of like the, I don't know, like the cooler version of Americans, you know? <laughs> no, I like that. I'll go with that <laughs> for sure. Now, you decided to get involved with Pink Shirt Day. So what is it that the band is doing? Tell us about that. Yeah, we uh, we wanted to, to give back. Um, after uh, touring the world here for the last year and uh, just meeting thousands of, of kids around the world uh, in our fan base, um, it was pretty clear that um, a lot of our fans are kids who are really dealing with uh, with challenges in their life, and uh, they're dealing with with bullying. And um, you know, it's something that uh, is very close to me as well. As this is something that I went through as a kid, and um, I just I just really closely related, I would say, with with our fan base. Um, and it's the type of thing that now it's it's different. It's not you know you used to get you know bullied at school or whatever, and then you went home and you could kind of continue with your life, but now it really follows you home and it follows you online and it seems like there's no escaping it. Um, so we wanted to, yeah, to, to bring awareness to that um, and to try to support kids and know that they're not alone. And um, so what we did is essentially every pre-save of the album that we got, uh, we donated a dollar uh, on behalf of that person. And uh, uh, we chose Pink Shirt Day because we think they're a, a great organization. They're from Canada. Um, they're rapidly growing and, uh, I think it's a really great cause, and we wanted to to show support in any way we could. Well, I think that's awesome, and thank you so much for that. Now, you mentioned, James, like, you know, that this happened to you when you were a kid. Clearly, it must have stuck with you your whole life, too. It does, yeah. It's something that never, never goes away. Um, when I was a kid, I was a bit of a bit of a heavier kid, I guess. Uh, and so just, you know, being called names all the time and whatnot, you just just something I would say never really leaves you. Um, you know, it's, it's always kind of ingrained in your memory. And, and now I, I also didn't, you know, I never probably pictured living a, a half decently public life. Um, and so even, you know, we get thousands of YouTube comments and Instagram comments. And, um, you know, I, I think we have a great fan base and 99% of them are positive, but uh, it's the human tendency to go to the 1% where you see people and they comment and they say things like, oh, you suck, you can't sing, you can't do this, you can't do that. So, um, you know, it's the type of thing I feel like, you know, I deal with even now, but I think as, you know, I'm, I'm not in my, you know, teens anymore, I think I've equipped myself with tools to be able to, to handle it and to deal with it and process it. And, you know, I guess it's my goal to kind of impart uh, you know, the knowledge that I've learned through through experience and the mental tools I've been able to develop and, and help our young fans uh, be able to maybe use some of those those tools in their own lives. See, now that is awesome. So if people hear this and they think, you know what, I need to learn more about Rare Americans, where can they do that? Oh, we're pretty easy to find. Um, YouTube is kind of our bread and butter. Uh, we're an animated band, so uh, our, our big, uh, you know, part of our, our band is our animated uh, music videos. They're always... They follow different narratives and they take on different perspectives of different characters dealing with different things in the world. So uh, search Rare Americans on YouTube or anywhere you listen to music, Spotify, Instagram, everything is just at Rare Americans. Okay, I was just checking that out too. That stuff is so unique, James. I've ne- I haven't Thanks. seen anything like that. How did, you, how did you gravitate towards that? How did the band decide this is what you, you wanted to do? Uh, well, on our first record, we did a bit of a mix of live action and uh, animation. We did one animated video, um, and that video in particular is called Cats, Dogs, and Rats. Uh, it really took off, um, and I think we learned quite quickly that 
Um, in the artist space, you know, 99% of people are doing live action videos. So we thought, hey, maybe this could be a slightly less crowded uh, space that we could kind of carve out a lane for ourselves. Um, and we quickly kind of gained a reputation amongst our fan base as storytellers. Um, and so that's something we really uh, wanted to dive head first into and um, what's nice about animation is you can tell any story that you want, uh, and it doesn't really uh, change the budget. Um, and if we wanted to to bring these stories to life in a in a live action video, you know, we'd be looking at tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and and months and months uh, these productions take. So for us, uh, this is a way that a it's unique, and b we can we can tell the stories that we want to tell and get across the messages and themes we want to get across, and we can do it in a um, you know, quite a predictable uh, fashion. We can we can do it a lot, which is what we wanted. Uh, we wanted to give our fans a lot of music and a lot of videos. Yeah, you sure did. Wow, the website's also very impressive. So if people want to do this, if they think, you know what, this is a great cause, it's a, a dollar to Pink Shirt Day for every pre-save of your new album, where do they go to do that? Well, now actually the, the record just came out today. Uh, so the, the pre-save uh, literally ended last night at midnight. But we also did, um, we did a T-shirt to go along with this, um, which is called Boxing for Bullies. Uh, and uh, it, it was just, I, I like boxing. It's something I'm passionate about. I like doing. Um, so we, 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 we themed it after that. It's a really cool shirt. It's got a really nice graphic to it. Uh, and we, we put that shirt on sale for 15 bucks, essentially just the cost uh, that it costs us to make it. And uh, if you buy one of those shirts, uh, we're also donating an additional dollar uh, on, on the, that customer's behalf, also to Pink Shirt Day. So at this point, the pre-save campaign ended last night. But uh, if you want to still participate, then you can go to our website. Uh, the shirts are very cool. Uh, and it's, it's just yeah. at rareamericans.com. I'm looking at it right now. It is very cool. I'm going to check that out. Uh, listen, James, thank you so much for this. Awesome. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, love talking to you. That's James Priestner. He's the lead singer of Rare Americans. Now, their website is rareamericans.com. They're a Canadian band, and they had been donating a dollar for the pre-save of their new album, a dollar from each of those pre-saves to Pink Shirt Day, which is great. But as James mentioned, the album came out, so that part of the, the giveaway is over. However... You can go on their website and check out this T-shirt. The T-shirt is called Boxing Against Bullies, and they will continue that dollar donation uh, to Pink Shirt Day for that. So check it out. Go to rareamericans.com. And you know what? You can do a great thing. Get a really cool T-shirt. It is very cool. And at the same time, you can help out Pink Shirt Day, of course.